Hello, everybody. I want to thank you and wish you good luck. The real reason I'm here tonight is, is, not, is not only to wish you good luck, but talk about, for 30 seconds, what it takes to win a championship and to be a champion. Good morning, and welcome to episode 380 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh. We um, continue our, uh, our journey from the bottom of the standings to the top. Um, today we're going to be talking about the Miami Marlins, and we have with us the author of the Marlins essay in the Baseball Prospectus Annual, uh, David Roth, who is a staff writer at SB Nation, as well as co-founder and editor of The Classical. Uh, I should note that at the end of this, in this sorry, not the end, in the second half of this show, uh, we will be talking, we will not be talking, but we will be talking to Juan C. Rodriguez, is that the middle initial? That is the correct initial. Of the Miami Sun Sentinel. Uh, all right. So anyway, onward and upward. Um, David wrote the essay for the Marlins. Uh, I don't like to play favorites, but I will say that it is one of my favorite things written um, on any topic in history. Uh, it, it is the only essay that has both Latin and profanity in it, uh, and as well as the phrase uh, to describe the front office, doof junta. <laughs> that would be D-O-O-F hyphen J-U-N-T-A, doof junta. Uh, and uh, this wonderful sentence, which I will read in full and basically captures the whole essay. It is difficult not to see the Marlins as a bigger and sadder and more emblematic thing and precisely the sort of towering crude pop art that wouldn't be out of place in Jeffrey Loria's esteemed personal collection, a garish crystallization of all the shameless, ravenously predatory pastel brutality at work in the Miamis of Charles Williford, Elmore Leonard, and Michael Mann and Rick Ross, a bleak example of the dissolving social compact between teams and their communities, proof of the friction between longstanding community-oriented loyalties and the corrosive effects of impunity and vast profit. So, David, for there to be winning teams, there have to be losing teams, there have to be the Washington Generals, but um, it seems like despite the World Series championships that the Marlins have, or maybe because of them, um, the Marlins seem to be a sort of particularly foul example of the genre. Do they have any positive role in the business of baseball? Oh, that's a tough one. I, <laughs> it's funny, all the words in that sentence, and I think there's there were 230 I counted in that sentence alone. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's tough. I mean, like, because there's a part of me, I don't want any team or any team's fan base to be unhappy, you know, that, but the way that um, the Marlins have sort of manifest under Loria, especially, but also under Wayne Huizenga, I mean, they've just always sort of been this way, that there's something about them that uh, they don't feel like other baseball teams, and it's hard to sort of get a warm feeling for them or from them. I mean, I think that there's, you know, certainly they, they've drafted fairly well. Like, there's good young players coming up through their system, and they've produced a ton of good players through that system. There just isn't this sense of, uh, for lack of a better word, commitment on management's part to like actually having the team be good year over year, or even the sense that like they have any idea what it would mean to to want that or to deliver that. They're they're really different than other teams, and it was kind of a weird thing to write about in that way because like I I cheer for a crappy baseball team with terrible ownership and that makes a ton of mistakes. And the Marlins are also that, and yet totally different. 
You're referring to the Mets? Is that who you cheer for? <laughs> yeah, the, um, I should. I, it's funny that you were able to guess that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> it's, that that's the other NLEs team that is as messed up as them. Yeah, they're they're. I mean, like, I mean, the Mets ownership. They're hapless and crappy and petty and like all the things that you want in a in a shitty ownership concern. But I can can I use the the brown word? Am I allowed to? Sure. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, but like they're just like it's it's a different sort of thing. Like there's not the Marlins for one thing make a huge profit, whereas the Mets are so screwed financially that they actually don't. I mean, Marlins are in they're winning bet for David Sampson and Jeffrey Loria and exactly zero other people. How differently do you think we would think of the Marlins as a franchise if the the two or three games that resulted in World Series wins and and moved the margin toward them so that they won two World Series instead of, you know, a few bounces going against them and them losing a decisive Game 7 in 97 or yeah. maybe Joe Torre not throwing Jeff Weaver to, to the Wolves <laughs> in 2003 and things go differently and suddenly they're a team that maybe has won a couple pennants but no World Series and they don't have... They don't have the rings to balance out the awfulness. Would like would would we have done something about the Marlins by now, or is it just luck that has kept them from from being censored somehow? It's weird. I think that in some ways, it almost. I think if that had happened, that they would maybe not have been as comfortable because both of those World Series teams they burned down the next year and burned them to. I mean, like the earth, and then you know a robust basalting of that earth was done. <laughs> afterwards it's like i think if they had screwed up i mean the idea clearly was and this is the the weird thing about it is that like you win a world series and then you start again but like if they didn't win those world series if we're going to do sort of you know newt gingrich style like what if the south had won type like imaginary history shit like the i i do sort of wonder how that would have played out because like it does seem like it like they had this model which was you know, there's a lot of issues wrong with it. And yet, like, it worked twice. They won two World Series in 16 years. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a pretty impressive thing. I mean, it's more than, than a lot of other teams can say. And yet, like, I wonder if that didn't, in some ways, like, entrench the idea that this was an okay way to do things. In terms yeah. of doing something about them, I mean, that's the other thing, too, is that, like, that's the main lesson of the Marlins for me, is that, like, you can't fire a bad owner like Frank McCord accepted. I mean, Laura is as bad as they come and nobody, you know, I don't think is, I don't think anybody really likes what he does or how he is. And yet like, you know, there he is. I, it's interesting because I actually think that from a PR standpoint, it might be to the point now where the fact that they've won the World Series is sort of the worst thing for them because it kind of in a way turns them into the the welfare queen where they've got like the 19 Cadillacs out in front of mm-hmm. their house. And like, I, I feel like there's like, something... Like you know harassed. they can do it, but like they are choosing not to sort of? No, kind of that they they benefited so much from from the sort of crass way that they do things. If they had just been a sad sack team, there'd be a lot more kind of, I think, empathy for them. But the fact is that they have more rings. You know, a, a Marlins fan, and bless the Marlins fan's heart, I have, I have nothing but love for the Marlins fan, but the Marlins fan has more, you know, World Series parades in his life than almost everybody that you and I know. 
And yeah, and over the over that period of time too, they they have more World Series wins than the Dodgers fans would remember, or than you know fans of like big franchises that have a lot and tried really hard. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's it doesn't seem fair that they get the World Series. So I feel like if they had lost a couple, of, I mean, you're right. The the counterfactual whereby they uh, they almost get there and then have to keep the, the team together for one more year to make a push uh, changes their history dramatically, but. Um, but I, yeah, I feel like if they had had you know two tough game seven losses, people wouldn't hold this against them quite so much. Um, you mentioned Loria, and, and Loria is, um, I mean, he is the the he has taken over the villainous role as a as a major league owner. Um, he's uh, he seems to be something like like a crook uh, as far as the uh, financing of his stadium. He uh, goes behind his GM's back and signs Greg Dobbs of all people, which it feels like a weird way to meddle. Uh, he does, you know, he does this this tear down, of course, this really kind of uh, poorly uh, poorly received tear down. But on the other hand, um, he did spend a lot of money that one time, and when he tore down, he tore down in a way that was really pretty incredibly effective immediately in building the farm system up. And he does seem to have some knack uh, for bringing in free agents when he gets personally involved in, in wooing them. Um, and so I guess the question is, is, is um, Loria is clearly a 20-grade uh, owner from a fan's perspective, but from a competitive perspective, is he better or worse than the median GM? If, if you gave him a real team, a team that wasn't in Miami, a team that was you know, like the Mets, would he have won with them, and would would he be a you know a model of consistency? Do you think, or is he a uh, bad dude? I mean, he's a bad dude, but the the question stands still as a I think a, a really good question. I mean, the, the thing that is strange about him, and this is one of the, the unique things about this type of bad owner, and you pointed this out with with Dobbs or last year with like personally vetoing uh, promotions for like marginal middle infield guys that he was pissed off about because they snitched on Tino Martinez. Like, it's one thing to be a bad owner and to not care. The Cleveland Browns, for instance, have had a series of these guys, like dudes that, like, didn't live in Ohio and, like, really maybe didn't even totally like football that much. But, like, you know, they were blameless in this stuff. Like, someone would send them an email and they would cut a check in response to that. Like, Loria meddles. Like, he cares. But, like, he cares about all the wrong stuff and he cares about it way too much. And it's hard to, you know, whatever, it's it's weird. Like, he trusted Larry Vinefest, and this is the thing that was actually kind of strange in, in writing the piece, was to realize that how long Larry Vinefest had actually been there. That Like, he had overseen a successful, he had overseen a teardown, a buildup of a world championship team. He'd burned that team down, and then had sort of started to build up another team, and then he oversaw the one, the failed buildup that they had, where they... They punted on Jose Reyes and Burley and Heath Bell and um, the other players that they signed before the 2012 season. That the like that guy, you know, had worked with Loria and had gotten some results on it. Without that, there, I do sort of wonder to what extent, like, if this is the year that is just Loria rampant, you know, really with his hand on the lever. I, I have no idea what to expect. I mean, the off season has been more or less what you expect from the Marlins. You know, they signed Jared Selfelmachia, who's pretty good, and then they signed a bunch of older dudes that needed to make sure that they had a big league spring training invitation next year. And, like, that's more or less par for the course. But like, without the the actual front office guys that Loria trusted 
to the extent that he trusts anybody but himself to do that job, I still I don't know necessarily what to expect. I think if you gave him a team, you know, like the Mets, I think he would probably do more or less the same thing. I think that he's probably he's certainly a better business person than the Wilpons are, but there are, are any number of people selling pretzels in Midtown Manhattan that I think could probably make a similar claim. You know, it's just it's a nice low bar. Even I can step over it, and I'm whatever freelance that wear shorts most of the time. So. Uh, to what do you attribute the Marlins' ability to retain front office talent? Because you would you would think that the typical GM would want to think of himself as something more than an enabler of of the owner, or a you know someone who makes the owner more money. He would want to think of himself as someone who is making baseball decisions to make his team a better baseball team and to build a team up to become a winner and then be told to tear it down and build it back up again and tear it back down and to, to stay throughout that process when one would imagine that opportunities would be available somewhere at some point. Is it just a, is it just a sign of, of how in demand these jobs are and how few there are to go around that you could, that you could keep someone uh, despite putting these, these impositions on them? And I mean, your guess is honestly as good as mine in that area. I mean, I feel like, South Florida is a, a nice place to live for some people. I, I don't think I would want to live there, but I imagine if you were into golf or tanning, you know, or uh, certain types of press sandwiches, it would be a pretty sweet place to spend all your time. <laughs> like, but the, like, I, I don't totally get it, honestly. Like, the thing that's weird about what Bindfest did there, when you look at, he was there for 12 years, so he oversaw, like, two attempted runs at World Series and then two burn downs, basically. That, like, that's actually a lot of work for a GM. Like, maybe it's more fun. You're always, I, I can't imagine that, but, like, you're always sort of doing stuff. They don't, they weren't cheap in the draft. I mean, they paid above slot. They did, like, all the things that a team trying to draft well would do, which were things that, I mean, again, that's the, go back to the Mets because they're the team I think about the most, but that the Mets were refusing to do actually for a lot of that period that like Bindest had free reign in this very limited, very unnecessarily overactive sort of way. So like, he, I think he did more than a lot of other GMs would do. I don't know if that was if fun for him or not. Obviously something kept him there for 12 years. Presumably either he super likes pressed pork, Cuban sandwich, <laughs> type things or like there was some aspect of it that worked for him he wasn't even paid that much more than any other gm i mean i don't it's it's really hard to say like but they're one of those teams it's like the way that again i, I go back to the cleveland browns because i think they're the nfl analog to this that like i imagine that it will be very difficult to fill jobs there going forward because like you know who you're working for you know the circumstances in which you'll be working. And then like, you really have to decide like, do you, would you rather be the scouting director for the Indians than have like Jeffrey Loria pull up to your office in a golf cart and like, get out, call you an asshole, get back into his golf cart and drive off. Like if that's the circumstances that you I mean like, yeah, it's sunny out, but like, that's, that's really what you're getting. Like, I don't know. They're, they're a, a quandary as a baseball team. And like existentially, <laughs> like, 
And do you think the, the same quandary applies then at the player level? Should we assume that if the Marlins were to attempt to ramp up again and sign people that it would be more difficult for them than it would be for any other team? Or can we conclude from their history of having done that a few times that that it's not really a problem that if they that if they were to commit to pay people market rate or maybe slightly above market rate they would be able to sign free agents as easily as anyone else yeah i mean you pointed it out earlier like it's it's worked it's continued to work i mean everybody knows what this owner is like everybody knows what the marlins do and i think that they suspect and certainly i think this is generally considered to be the reason why albert Pujols didn't sign there they offered him more money than the angels did i believe but they did not guarantee a no-trade clause. I think he was like, well, I want to play for the number of years that I'm signing for in the place where I'm signing for them. I think if you if you find people that are either willing to believe what the Marlins are putting down or that are okay with the idea of getting slightly more money and then possibly being traded to Toronto 14 months after you sign a contract, but clearly there's, you know, that it's a lot of money that these guys are talking about and that they're getting paid. But I, I mean, I really sort of wonder about it. This was something I, I sort of puzzled over in the, the essay as I was writing it, because I mean, for me, there's a credibility issue there. I look at the, at them and I, I can't think of them as a team that's willing to deal in good faith. And I, you know, I feel bad for the young players sort of coming up through their system because they know what they're going to get. And I think, you know, even John Carlos Stanton being the, the biggest example there that, like, you know, he tries hard and he plays great, but, like, he has to know that things are not going to end well for him there. They're not going to end happily, at least. But, like, that's a, that's a crappy way to work. I wouldn't want to work under those conditions either. Mm-hmm. For a veteran player, you know, for Reed Johnson or Raphael for call or whatever, then it's, you know, sort of you're trying to get a paycheck and Miami's a nice enough place to live if you're into the things that Miami is good at. But there's something kind of like bleak about it. Maybe even bleaker if we, when you consider that the the all probably will work. That like the next time that Loria decides he wants to ramp up, that like he'll be able to pay some guy to go play left because Christian Yelich and Giancarlo Stanton are going to be the other guys in the outfield, and they might make the playoffs and you know whatever. That's and I wonder to to what extent it spoils the fan experience because often the redeeming aspect of rooting for a bad team is that you can anticipate something good a few years down the road. If you're if you're a Cubs fan or an Astros fan, you can look at the great farm system and you can imagine your team locking up all of those guys and building this core and keeping them around and having a perennial contender. Whereas if you're the Marlins fan, based on on past precedent, the most you can really hope for is that the strong farm system produces a bunch of guys all at once, and then you can hang on to them for a year or two before you have to start talking about trading them. So I yeah. I, I wonder to what extent that sort of spoils the, the typical silver lining of rooting for a team that is struggling in the short term. Yeah, I think I have to imagine it does quite a bit. I mean, I think... I have, you know, friends that, that cheer for better teams than the team I cheer for. But even, I mean, I've talked myself into plenty of bad teams. All it takes is a little bit of hope, like a, a modicum of, you know, a sliver of daylight. <laughs> and you can dream on that. And, you know, baseball's fun. If you like baseball, you're going to watch it. And so, you know, for 
my friends who were, you know, Reds fans, I know, for instance, that like so much of that team, they got to, to watch grow up on the field and they watched them get very good. You know, that that's an experience for them that like, I think adds a lot of depth and value the experience of watching it. And even for me that like, you know, once somebody has been a Met for a couple of years, I'm more or less like, um, I'll, I'll ride for them. Like even me, there's like Joe, Joe Orsalak, like he gave it all, you know, like he wasn't good or whatever, but he was there for like two seasons and he was born in New Jersey. <laughs> so like, uh, you know, he's a Met, like he, he did his best. With the Marlins, there's this sense of, of transience to not just the veterans that sort of cycle in and out every year, but like even, like you said, with the, with the young players and stuff like that, that they haven't kept a guy. There's not like, you know, Mr. Marlin and there's Jeff Conine, or I guess was the last actual answer to that. And like, <laughs> Jeff Conine's like, I don't, you know, 50 years old or something. <laughs> like, it's kind of... When like, he was we, playing for the Marlins, he was 50 Yes, years he old. was. He was a very effective contributor at the age of 49. Uh, <laughs> but he was... I, there's something about that that is kind of darker to it, you know, that, that like sort of makes it harder to laugh at them. It's weird too, though, because the the Marlins are one of those cases where, like, South Florida is crazy about baseball. There's not really any indication to me that they super love major league baseball. Like, they love high school baseball and they love college baseball. But in the same way that like NFL teams in SEC country don't necessarily draw as readily as, like, you can get more people to go see like a, a crummy. UNC football team play, then you can get to go see the Panthers, and the Panthers are good. But, like, I don't know to what extent, like, the the Marlins have that buy-in. And certainly, like, you know, they've never really given themselves a chance because they've always been the Marlins and acted exactly like the Marlins act. So, uh, last question before we get your prediction. You mentioned that the uh, Marlins were signing veterans to, you know, to fill out the uh, roster. Last year's uh, Marlins veteran grab was was really one of my favorite parts of the year. Um, they got uh, a list that included uh, some really spectacularly funny names. Kevin Kuzminoff, John Main, Austin Kearns, John Roush, Sean Figgins, Joe Mahoney. Great list, great group. Didn't win the World Series, but great, great, great effort, guys. Uh, That's just the like the the shittiest pack of tops baseball cards to like <laughs> rip open. You're like, oh wow, oh cool. He showed Figgins parallel. That's cool. It's one of five thousand. But all those there's just like common cards grabbed in bulk in a yeah. fist, <laughs> like coming out of a box. Yeah, you get those in two checklists. Uh, <laughs> so so who's Who's on this year's Marlins offseason veteran grab? You want me to read the list off to you? I do, yeah. It's fresh. It's a Reed Johnson and facial hair that comes with Reed Johnson. <laughs> uh, you have Raphael Fercal, who's uh, young and uh, fresh. Ty Wigginton. Josh Rodriguez, who played for uh, the Mets double-A team last year, but has played in the majors before, which is... <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is nice for him. Josh Spence, Kevin Slowey, uh, Jordani Valdis, who has, I know this as a former Mets fan, has a uh, a Ferrari, I believe, that he's had custom done so that it says Poppy Valdi, where it would usually say Ferrari, which is nice. Wow. Yeah, he also, he also has 
I don't want to recommend anybody's Instagram on this because I, my whole brand is riding on, on me getting the Instagram recommendation rate. I recommend Jordani Valdespin's Instagram if you want to see pictures of Jordani Valdespin <laughs> with a handgun or shirtless near a pool, any of that. He's going to deliver, and I promise he will deliver. Casey McGeehee. Is, is there now, uh, which is good. And they've built as um, Brian Bogosevich, or however you say his name, Bogus, Bogusevich, yeah. and then they've built a first base pl- platoon that's going to be uh, it's Jeff Baker, and then it's also Garrett Jones. Oh, beautiful. So if you put those two guys together, then you have uh, the sum of Jeff Baker and Garrett Jones. <laughs> All right, so, so I think it might be might be better than last year's. I think. Yeah, it's like imagine you remember uh, Master Blaster from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. It's like that, but it grounds out. <laughs> and you call them <laughs> you call them the, the Miami Marlins hospice in your essay, and it. It's, I it really, it's, it's like always a, like the, the Mets did this for a long time too. Though it's like the last place that you go, and it's like a comfortable home for Trot Nixon because you get a, used to like not being in the majors anymore. <laughs> you know, and it's like it's kind of a community outreach thing, really. I mean, the, that's what Florida is, right? So right. Like we're we're better to like just sort of ride it out in South Florida. Like, exactly. you have to get up too early and, like, nobody yells at you for being Juan Pierre because there's nobody there. Right. Like then you're People just... can, can go to the park and see players at the same stage of, of their careers <laughs> as, as they are. <laughs> like, roughly tracking to where they are in life. They're like, oh, like celebrating two wonderful decades on Medicaid. And then you watch, like, Juan Pierre, um, like, hit the ball in the air for some reason. And you're like, oh, yeah, I know that feeling. Like... <laughs> Oh. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, uh, I'm I'm rereading this essay actually while you guys talk. So I don't know what you were saying, but I've been laughing. I've been laughing in parallel. Uh, my, here's my second favorite line from the essay: When you refer to 1998 as a weird summer of bleary recess in which senior citizens and hobos and toddlers tear ass ineffectually around the same shabby lot. <laughs> That team was really interesting because there were parts of the 97 World Series championship team still there, but then, like, they shuffled all these dudes. Like, Piazza was there for, like, 70 at-bats, but the guys that he was catching were, like, people that I remember getting baseball cards for when I was very young. Like, Don Paul was there for a little while, like, Don with two N's. And, like, all those guys must have just, like, sort of showed up and been like, oh, like, none of the lockers have names on them? Okay. And, like, just did their thing for a little bit. Jim Leland managing that team is actually something I would really love to read more about, too. Because he <laughs> just managed a World Series team, and then all of a sudden he's, like, yelling at all these quad A guys being, like, suck less. And they're like, I honestly can't. Like, I don't. Like, this is all I got. <laughs> all right. So, uh... We need your wins total. We need your predicted wins total. Oh, boy. Well, they said David Sanson promised they would not lose 100 games again. And I think that that is a, a bold promise on his part that I imagine will probably – I think they'll probably win 72 games. I think that they're – I don't know how much better they'll actually be. They're pretty much the same team as last year's team. I mean, they're very different in terms of personnel, but they've just, like, swapped out identical older dudes uh, for 
older dudes with different names. Like, I mean, it's the same sort of thing. But I think 72 wins seems more or less right. I mean, the NL East, I think the Phillies will be a good deal worse. I think the Mets will probably be about the same. I think the Nats will be better, and I think the Braves will be just as good. So there's not a lot of room for them there, one way or the other. It's just a question of who they bring up and how it works. Yelich, Chris and Yelich could be very good. Andrew Heaney could be very good. But there's not... Um, any sense to me that there's going to be a, a great step forward, but I don't think they'll win. I don't think they'll lose a hundred games again. I was struck by the fact when I wrote the essay, they've only lost. That was the second worst season they've ever had last year. when they lost 100 games. They'd never done that before. They've lost like 90 odd games, any number of times, but like they've always managed to stay somehow just above that decisive round number level of suck. <laughs> Marlins guarantee is, uh, I mean, David Sampson's word is his bond. If he says that they are not going to lose 100 games, you can you can take that to the bank. Yeah, if David Sampson says that they're not going to lose 100 games, then David Sampson probably just stole hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> of money from the area where you live. <laughs> All right. Uh, that was fun. Thank you for that. Um, and, uh, Thanks we're for gonna... having me. Yeah, we're going to transition now to the uh, to the serious side. Uh, we're all going to leave, but uh, in about two seconds, you're going to hear Juan C. Rodriguez of the Sun Sentinel talking about the Marlins um, in informative ways. Welcome to Drop Third Strike. I'm Nick Wheatley Schaller, and I'll be interviewing beat writers, columnists, and broadcasters from around the country, getting their perspective on the teams they cover. I'm speaking with Juan C. Rodriguez, beat reporter for the Sun Sentinel. Juan, you have a couple of weeks until spring training begins. Are you prepared for the 80-mile trek from Miami to Jupiter? You know, that's one of the uh, conveniences for us. I, I think it, it's nice for the northern teams to come down into warm weather. But we've been in the warm weather all uh, winter, so it's a uh, short drive. And at least from uh, from the rider's standpoint, it enables us to get uh, you know back home on a short order when we need to. So, you know, it's convenient covering the Marlins and uh, living in South Florida. Definitely. I think... The Marlins and the uh, Diamondbacks are the two teams that have to travel north in order to go to spring training. The Diamondbacks are even closer. They're about 25 miles away from their actual ballpark. Mm -hmm. uh, so yesterday I spoke with Evan Drellick of the Houston Chronicle about the Astros, who finished uh, uh, 51 and 115 last year. They ended the season with a 15-game losing streak. The Marlins had the worst record in the National League at 62 and 100, but they had a much different ending to their season winning their last four games, three of which came against the Tigers. Uh, Miami was actually the only team besides the Red Sox to end their season with an on-field celebration, as Henderson Alvarez accomplished the rare feat of clinching a no-hitter from within the batter's box. Alvarez had just finished his ninth no-hit inning, but the Marlins had not scored a run the whole game. The, uh, Miami loaded the bases in the bottom of the ninth with two outs, bringing up Greg Dobbs, which put Alvarez on deck, but with no chance to actually bat in the inning. Then on the first pitch, Luke Bacodin threw a pitch into the dirt that got past Brian Pena and allowed Giancarlo Stanton to score the game-winning run. What was it like seeing a 100-loss season end on such a high note and in such dramatic fashion? You know, it was, it was very odd. I mean, it, uh, and probably what made it odd was the fact that this game was really, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of a throwaway game. I don't think uh, a lot of people were, were paying attention because earlier in the day, the Marlins, uh, you know, introduced uh, Michael Hill as their new uh, president of baseball operations and uh, Dan Jennings as their new general manager. So I think as uh, 
writers in the press box, we were all kind of focused on, uh, you know, transcribing that, those interviews and, uh, and getting those stories done. And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden we look up and uh, here's Henderson Alvarez, you know, no hitting the, uh, the American League Central Champions. And, you know, not to take anything away from, uh, from Alvarez, but, you know, this was a, uh, a pretty scaled down uh, Tigers lineup that, that he was facing that day. But still, you know, any, any kind of no hitter scenario is very emotional. And, uh, you know, it was, it was funny because uh, when Alvarez got through the ninth inning, you know, he he raised his arms like he had done it. You know, somewhere along the line, he dreamed up a uh, a Marlins run. So he actually thought that they were leading one nothing, which uh, he said afterward contributed to his uh, his nerves uh, in that ninth inning. But you know, he came back in the dugout and he asked Placido Polanco, "Hey, how come nobody celebrated?" And he's like, "Well, we, it's a zero zero game. Nobody <laughs> scored yet." But uh, you know, and then you know, you get to the bottom of the ninth, and then the, the manner in which they were. Uh, they were able to to win that game in walk-off fashion, as you described, on a wild pitch. was just uh, was just pretty bizarre. But uh, you know, as you said, they, they were able to to celebrate and end an otherwise uh, dismal season on a high note. You mentioned one of the biggest changes for Miami this off season was when they h- hired Mike Michael Hill as the new president of baseball operations. He had been the vice president of baseball operations and general manager since two thousand seven. He's replacing Larry Beinfest, who was fired, again, right before that last game of the season. So how much of a change is this going to be for the Marlins and for Hill? Are there any significant differences between the approaches that Hill and Beinfest bring to the front office? You know, so far, I really don't think that there's a market difference, uh, simply because, you know, Michael worked under Larry for, uh, you know, the better part of the last uh, decade here in South Florida. So... Uh, you know, I think that they have an organizational philosophy in place, and uh, you know, I really don't see Michael Hill or Dan Jennings, for that matter, really straying from that uh, philosophy too much. Um, you know, one thing that one difference between the two, I think, Mike Hill uh, really came up. Uh, you know, the the scouting ranks. Uh, you know, starting uh, you know on the ground floor with the. Uh, Tampa Bay Rays and, uh, you know, as a scouting assistant and just kind of working his way up the ladder through uh, different organizations until he arrived in uh, South Florida and uh, as a uh, Beinfest assistant general manager. And then ultimately when uh, when Beinfest got promoted to president of baseball operations, uh, Hill got the, the GM title. Um, so, you know, these are, you know, guys that, uh, uh, you know, both of them really uh, – sure of what they want to do and I think the fact that uh, you know that there's such a, a, a tightly knit inner circle there in that front office you know they've had a chance to really develop a uh, you know plan for for what works down here and uh, you know in this market and uh, you know I think so far this offseason you've kind of seen uh, Michael Hill kind of stick to the script in terms of uh, you know the players that they've gone after and uh, how they've looked at uh, improving this ball club. It's been an interesting offseason for Miami. In 2013, they had uh, the worst slugging percentage since that any team has had since 1981, slugging 335, also the third worst since 1980. Some of that was due to Giancarlo Stanton hitting with a little less power than usual, had a higher ground ball rate. Um, but they also gave a lot of playing time to guys like Placido Polanco and Juan Pierre, who are now free agents and both possibly considering retirement. Uh, so then in this offseason, they added a bit of pop to the lineup. They signed Garrett Jones and Jared Saltalamacchia. Do the Marlins have any other sources of power that can help them score some more runs in 2014? 
You know, you look around the diamond and, uh, you know, outside of Giancarlo Stanton, as you mentioned, uh, there, there really isn't a, a really legit power threat. Um, you know, uh, Jones, is, uh, as you said, has uh, some nice pop and, uh, you know, he'll get his, uh, you know, 10 or 12 home runs. Uh, Casey McGee, who they uh, added to play third base, uh, also had some nice uh, power numbers back when, uh, you know, when he played with, uh, with the Brewers in Milwaukee. Obviously, he's coming to a much different ballpark now. That's probably going to rob him of uh, of some home runs. Uh, so, other than Stanton, I think you're probably looking at Jared Saltalamacchia as uh, as their next uh, greatest power threat. And again, you know, the differences between uh, Fenway Park and, uh, and Marlins Park are going to be pretty stark for Saltalamacchia. But uh, you know, I think we all kind of uh, figure the Marlins would would go after uh, you know at least one other real kind of legit power source. Uh, for this lineup going into 2014, uh, and uh, you know, I think as the offseason progressed, uh, Michael Hill told us that hey, it's not uh, you know just about adding more home runs to the lineup; it's about just scoring runs. Period. And however those runs come, we're going to be happy with that. So, you know, I think with guys like Saltalamacchia, like Jones, and like McGee, uh, they were looking for hitters who could uh, take advantage of, of the uh, big gaps in Marlins Park. Uh, you know, Saltalmachia, if I'm not mistaken, had uh, you know around 40 doubles at uh, Fenway. So uh, you know he should uh, you know be able to to approach uh, you know that number again. So uh, you know while they don't have the the home run threats, uh, you know the, the 20 homer guys up and down the lineup like a lot of teams do. I think uh, you know the, they went after guys that are that are contact guys, guys that are going to be able to put balls in the gap and. Uh, they hope that translates into a greater run production. Last winter, we heard a lot of Giancarlo Stanton trade rumors that ended up yielding pretty much nothing. Uh, now we're starting to hear some rumors of an extension as the Marlins are looking to buy out Stanton's two remaining arbitration years as well as some free agent years. You wrote an article yesterday following Freddie Freeman's extension, which you said provided a decent reference point for Miami. What are the chances that Miami actually works out a deal this year and if they don't want to work one out by the end of the year, is there any chance that Stanton stays with Miami long term? Well, you know, the Marlins are saying all the right things in terms of, uh, you know, identifying Giancarlo Stanton as the guy they want to build around. Um, but in terms of that uh, kind of yielding any kind of uh, uh, substantive uh, talks on a, on a long term extension, that just hasn't happened yet. Uh, uh, Stan was eligible for arbitration for the first time this offseason. Uh, the two sides settled for a one-year deal for $6.5 million. And, uh, you know, when we asked about, uh, you know, whether uh, any kind of multi-year scenarios were discussed, uh, the Marlins just kind of said, look, we made it clear to him that, uh, you know, that that point will come and uh, we have a lot of interest in, in keeping him, uh, you know, a Marlin for many years to come. But uh, But that offer has yet to materialize. And uh, you know that's why I think the the, the Freddie Freeman extension was uh, kind of fascinating, just in terms of uh, of how that might impact uh, how the Marlins approach Stanton. You know, when you look at uh, Freeman and Stanton, they they obviously have some they're different players. Uh, you know, Stanton obviously has a big power edge, but uh, you know Freeman been more of the clutch hitter, more of a of a batting average guy uh, so far in his career. But they're both uh, basically have the same service time in the majors. They're both the same age. So I think you have a pretty good reference point with uh, Freeman in terms of what it'll take to uh, keep staying in the fold long term. Um, you know, we've also asked about a timetable. You know, is there kind of a cutoff point where if they don't have him signed 
Do they kind of move on from there and look to trade them? Uh, they said really they, they don't have that kind of timetable laid out. But, uh, you know, my thinking is if by next offseason they don't have him locked up to a multi-year deal, they, they really have to give serious thought to uh, to moving him and, uh, and bringing back as, as big a package as, uh, you know, as they can get. Has there been much difference between the ne- negotiations happening with Stanton now and the previous negotiations that they've had with guys who are uh, entering their arbitration years? Well, the the Marlins, uh, in terms of their multi-year uh contracts have a policy where you know any kind of uh, multi-year deal that uh that they sign they want to buy out at least uh two years of a free agency uh you go back to uh hanley ramirez when uh when they signed him to a six-year 70 million dollar extension that bought out his three uh arbitration years plus three years of uh of free agency so um, you know, when you look at Stan, had they kind of gone down that road this season, it would have been a similar kind of six-year deal, I would have thought, or minimum five years. Um, going into next season, I would think, uh, you know, it's going to be a minimum, you know, five years. But, uh, you know, Stan being a year closer to free agency, he might want to roll the dice. And, and, you know, unless they come with some kind of like Freeman-like uh, offer, uh, you know, seven, eight-year deal, uh, he might not be interested. So, you know, it takes uh, two willing parties to, to make something like this happen. There's been a lot of speculation as far as, uh, you know, Stan's desire to, to stay in South Florida long term. Uh, you know, he might want to see, get a little more sense of what direction this organization's heading before he commits to that kind of a deal. You know, he's a Southern California guy and, you know, maybe deep down he wants to get back to the West Coast. But, uh, you know, if the Marlins come to him within the next 12 months with a legitimate offer uh, just based on his injury history and you know the, the trouble that he's had at times staying on the field you know I think Stan's got to uh, you know give it some some serious consideration it'll definitely be interesting to see how that plays out on the other side of the ball the Mar- Marlins were a bit better um, in terms of pitching than they were at hitting a lot of that really most of it was due to Jose Fernandez who was obviously incredible the very young age is uh, Pakota comparable players are Clayton Kershaw, Felix Hernandez, and Doc Gooden. So quite a group. Um, Miami's rotation wasn't very good outside of Fernandez. They had some promising performances from guys like Henderson Alvarez, who threw that no-hitter, and uh, Nathan Nivaldi. Um, but both of those guys relied on low home run to fly ball ratios, which were definitely helped out by their park and uh, will be tough to replicate in the future. Uh, who do you see in the Marlins rotation that has a chance to become a respectable number two to Fernandez, and what do they need to do in order to get there? You know, I think based on the guys that are projected uh, to, to open the year in the rotation, uh, you know, you have to look at Nathan Avaldi as, uh, as probably having the, the best chance of settling into to that uh, number two spot. And, uh, you know, Avaldi, uh, he got a late start to, to last season, uh, as did Henderson Alvarez with a, uh, you know, with a sh- uh, shoulder issue. But once he came back, uh, you know, he, he looked really well, I think, uh, uh, the consistency is probably still a little bit of a factor. And, uh, you know, one thing with Avaldi, he's got uh, such a big fastball. If, if he would have thrown enough innings to qualify, his uh, average fastball velocity of uh, 96.1 miles an hour, I think, would have led the uh, the National League. But, uh, you know, for a guy with, with such a big fastball, he doesn't complement it with a pitch. So I think that, uh, you know, kind of needs to. Uh, keep developing. He's a four-pitch guy, kind of relies more on the slider than the curve at this point. Uh, the changeup has been very good for him at times as well. 
But, uh, you know, I think if Evaldi can, can keep developing that breaking ball, uh, start missing some more bats. Uh, you know, you look at Fernandez, guys like Matt Harvey, uh, Strasburg, guys with the big fastballs, you know, their swinging strike percentages are all, uh, you know, 10% plus. And, uh, you know, Evaldi was uh, kind of in that um, about 6.5% for swinging strikes. So, you know, for a guy with as good a stuff as him, you really would like to see him miss a few more bats. And I think that'll uh, come as long as he can develop one of those breaking pitches. And if he can uh, complement that with, with the changeup, which, uh, as I mentioned, has uh, uh, looked very good at times. And, and plus, you know, I think, uh, you know, the Marlins have a, a really nice number two starter there. Definitely disappointing for the Marlins that Evaldi hasn't been able to miss more bats, as you say. Pretty electric stuff, but just has not translated yet. So looking forward into 2014, what are the Marlins' goals? Do, are they looking to improve in, in total of uh, number of wins? Are they looking to get any prospects, some playing time? What are, what are they looking at in 2014? Well, I, I think ideally you'd just like to see a collective, uh, you know, step forward from this club. Uh, you know, you're coming off a 62 and 100 season and, uh, you know, you're basically just looking to, to win more games, however you can do it. And uh, when you look at uh, last season and why the Marlins lost 100 games, it, it certainly starts with uh, with the offense. Uh, I mean, they were limited to you know, three runs or less and, you know, well over half of their games. And, uh, you know, that just puts so much pressure on, uh, on, on you know, some of these young starters. Uh, you know, I think consistently the rotation did its job. Uh, you know, they, they gave them enough quality starts. Uh, you know, Jose Fernandez was was outstanding. So, you know, uh, top to bottom, those guys probably should have uh, had better win-loss records than they uh, finished with. Uh, you know, the Marlins... Uh, you know, look to patch uh, some holes with, uh, you know, at, at first base going with, uh, you know, Gary Jones and, uh, you know, at third with, with uh, McGee. So they're hoping, you know, those two guys plus Rafael Fercal that uh, they're going to transition to second base will uh, kind of uh, be able to, to spark, you know, more consistent offensive production. And if they can, uh, you know, kind of average, uh, you know, four and a half runs a game or even four runs a game, I think they have enough uh, – talented starters where, uh, you know, they're certainly going to uh, see a jump in, in win totals uh, for the team. So, you know, it isn't inconceivable to have, you know, you know 10, 15 game improvement from the Marlins. But, uh, you know, again, when you have such a young core, you know, it's, it's uh, rare to see them all, you know, take that collective step forward. Uh, you know, Christian Yelich uh, came up. Uh, he's going to be their starting left fielder. And, um, you know, he's, he's probably a, a future number three hole hitter for them. Uh, center field is uh, going to be a little bit of a question. Uh, both uh, Marcelo Zuna and uh, Jake Marisnik uh, came up last season with uh, kind of varying results, and uh, it'll be interesting to see which one of those two guys can kind of establish themselves. And, uh, you know, outside of that, I think, uh, you know, it's just uh, keep getting better and get to the position where, uh, you know, this core is ready to compete again. And then I think you're going to see uh, Mike Hill in the front office be a little more aggressive in free agency and with uh, in the trade market that of close to major league ready uh, pitching that they're you know willing to move in the right deal. So I think once you see this group as a whole show that they're you know a little bit uh, more prepared to win, uh, you'll see the Marlins kind of make uh, you know some more aggressive moves to uh, kind of put them over the edge. Well, it should be an interesting season for them. Um, thanks a lot, Juan, for coming on the show. Um, Good luck this season. Uh, have a good trip uh, up to Jupiter. 
And uh, thanks again for, for coming on the show. You got it, Nick. Anytime. That was Juan C. Rodriguez from the Sun Sentinel. You can read his work at sun-sentinel.com sports or follow him on Twitter at jcrmarlinsbeat. That is it for my interviews this week. I'll be back on Monday to talk about the Minnesota Twins with Phil Miller of the Star Tribune. Thanks for listening.